This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. We're in Acts 8, verses 4 through 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria, proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Speaking of much joy, let's talk about laundry, shall we? (laughs) No? No joy in laundry? Uh, full disclosure, I don't do the laundry in my house. Uh, Courtney uh, takes care of that, and uh, that's probably really, really good that she does. Uh, but I'm told uh, by her and other women in our small group that uh, laundry is one of those kind of frustrating jobs. Like you do it, and it's never quite done, and you got to do it again. And as soon as it's all over, it's piled up again. And I, I get that, and I've had other tasks in my life that feel that way. And the reality is that hard work that seems to accomplish nothing can be very, very discouraging. Hard work that seems to accomplish nothing can be very, very discouraging. In fact, there was a comparison done to uh, several concentration camps in Germany during the uh, World War II. And in one concentration camp, they put the um, prisoners to hard work, but they were building things. They were building, you know, uh, other barracks. They were building, you know, mess halls. They were building things. And in another concentration camp, they were put to hard work, but they were just digging holes and then filling them again and digging holes and filling them again. And the amount of despair in the places where the work was not accomplishing anything was, was staggering. When hard work seems to accomplish nothing, it can be really, really discouraging. But at the same time, when you know your work is accomplishing something for the greater good, you know that there's a mission attached to your labor and it resonates with your core values, then you will put blood, sweat, and tears into that thing knowing it's going to be used. In fact, every leadership book I've ever read talks about tying with, you know, leading your constituents, leading your people to the greater mission of what you're trying to accomplish to keep them motivated to do the work. And I say all of that to talk about the story we see here in Acts chapter 8. So Acts chapter 5, 6, and 7 are a little more difficult chapters in the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 5, just flip back and look at the headings here with me, and you'll see what I mean. In Acts chapter 5, we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Things kind of take a really interesting turn here in in the story of the church, and that's not such a great story. Some pretty dramatic experiences happen there. And then if you take a look at the, uh, right before verse 17, the title says the apostles were arrested, so the apostles are getting arrested. And then in chapter 6, you have this tension coming up in the church, and so they have these deacons that they uh, uh, elect and they put into place, and, and then these deacons are, are seized. Stephen is seized, and even though Stephen is preaching in the gospel, yet he is seized, and then eventually, excuse me, eventually he dies. I'm so a lot of work, a lot of labor, and what good did it do? 
Stephen, you stood up, you're faithful to the word of God, and what good did it do? It got you killed. And if you look at those things, you begin to think, man, this is, what good is this? And I'm just wondering as I'm trying to lead a church in 2021 in the current cultural context, It'd be easy for you to look around and to say, what good is all this standing up for Jesus going to do anyway? But then we come to this story that we have. Philip in Acts 8, 4. And Philip goes and he preaches the gospel. And many believe And the Bible says in verse number 8, there was much joy in that city. The main question that I ask whenever I approach a text of Scripture and I'm going to preach it is, why did Luke include this story? Why did the author put this story in this text for the audience that he had in front of him? I believe it was this. Hey, look, things seem bleak at times. Things can seem really, really dark at times. But rest assured, God is still at work. God is still moving. God is still faithful. And so the big idea that I believe Luke has with writing the text is going to be our big idea of the day. So if you write this down, church, God is still at work. So let's join him in that endeavor. God is still at work and we should join him. And to do that, to encourage you along that line, what I want to do is look at this text and want to pull from this text four ways in which we can join God. Four ways in which we can join God in his work. And I want you to write this one down first. Number one, we join God by hoping in him. We join God by hoping in him. Okay, where are you getting that from, Pastor? Good question. Take a look again at verse number four. And and look how verse number four begins. It says, and those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Those who were scattered and those who were scattered the, the uh, Greek could, could be, and those who were dispersed, or, or could literally read, and the dispersed ones. What an interesting way to refer to the church, the scattered, the dispersed ones, because they were scattered out of Jerusalem and out from there into now Samaria and eventually to the uttermost parts of the world. Because Jesus made a promise. Jesus said that the gospel would do that very thing. Start in Judea, then in Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the world. And we see that very thing happening here. And why? Why were they scattered? Well, let your eyes fall back on verse number 1 of chapter 8, eight one, which says this, And Saul approved of his execution, the execution of Stephen. And now look at this. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. So they had this death of Stephen, the mourning of the loss of Stephen. Then it gets worse. Here's verse number three. But Saul was, what's your Bible say, church? But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Boy, could you imagine that happening today? Someone knocking on the door of your house and dragging you and your family off to prison because you were believing in Christ. That was happening. Dark times. It's easy to look at that and to say, where's the hope? Pastor said, hope. Where's the hope? They were trying to stomp out the church. But the church is like a fire. 
And the more they tried to stop the church, the more the embers were scattered and flames began to ignite all over the place. And their very intention was to destroy the church, and yet God used it to further the church. To the point where this, okay, so, so where did this all happen? Well, this all happened in Jerusalem. Here's a little star uh, by Jerusalem. And, and, um, and, and where are you sitting today? Are you in Jerusalem today? No, you are in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So, I mean, see what happened? The word of God spread and spread and spread like a fire. And even though it seemed dark and discouraging and disparaging and, and, and like, is this really going to accomplish anything? God used that very thing to be faithful to his promise and to spread the gospel out so that for me as a 12-year-old in Washington State, Thousands and thousands of miles away from Jerusalem, I heard the gospel and I believed it. And you, wherever you were born in Indiana, wherever you heard about Christ, some people even hear it in Kentucky and believe. Can you believe that? Even in Kentucky, the gospels penetrated the darkest places. (laughs) Praise God for that. Jesus made the promise, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I need to tell you that because it feels like the world is winning right now. And it feels like the church is losing. Do you get that feeling? At times it feels really hopeless. We are living in probably um, the least Christian time in America that I can remember in my lifetime. The church in America seems to be just selling out all over the place. And I hear about it more and more each week. Places where I never thought it would happen. It's happening. And we can feel dark. We can feel like it's a time of despair. But listen, this is when, this is when God rescues. Isn't that how every good story is? Like when things feel really dark, really scary, like, like all hope is lost, then the hero shows up and wins the day. This happened like five times in the Lord of the Rings series. So, right, they were at um, Minas Tirith, and the forces of Mordor were marching on Minas Tirith, and they were nearly taking it. And then, finally, Aragorn shows up, and he leads the ghost pirates, and they set it free, right? Happened again at the Black Gate. Happened again at the Black Gate, where it seemed like despairing, and Mordor now, the entire area of Mordor is coming out, a little band of people. And then the ring is put in the fire, and the eagles come like they always did, and rescued everybody, you know, over and over again. And uh, uh, Star Wars, now I have not used a Star Wars illustration in months, so back off. <laughs> but the Death Star is rounding the, the planet and the moon Yavin 4 where the rebel forces are. It's getting in alignment and they're about ready to fire until Luke shoots the torpedoes down the very convenient exhaust ports and blows up, blows up the Death Star. And that's the gospel. I mean, not. It's like the gospel, okay? Good gravy. Um, the Star Wars is not the gospel, but what is the gospel is that when you were at your darkest moment and you had no hope to save yourself. Think about this. You had no hope to save yourself. 
You weren't good enough. Your works weren't good enough. You're a wretched sinner. You deserve the fires of hell. And then God sent his son, Jesus, who lived the life you should have lived, and he died the death you should have died, and he paid for your sin, and he rose again victorious over the sin. And now all you have to do is believe and call on him. And by leaving and calling, you're saved from me. That's the gospel. And I'm telling you, that's the church. And yes, America is abandoning its first love. The church in America is abandoning its first love. Yes, the culture is darker than I've ever seen it. And yes, it feels bleak and hopeless, but God is still at work. God is still moving. There is a promise. And I'm telling you, we need to join him. I want to be a part of that work. So let's do it together. So here's some questions to ask. When I look at the church today, am I more filled with hope or despair? What am I doing to be a part of the work of the church? In what ways can I give myself more to God's gospel work through the ministry of our church? How can we join in this even more together? Some things to think through. But here's what I want you to have. I want you to be fired up about what God is doing. And I want you to believe that he is on the move. And I want you to say, I want to be a part of that. So by hoping in him is clearly a way. And I believe that's exactly why Luke put this story in this in our uh, text today is to say, look, God is still at work, hope in him. But also this, let's do this, by hoping in him, by preaching his word. How are we going to join God in his work? By hoping in him, number two, by preaching his word. And this is really easy to see. If you go back to uh, chapter eight, verse number four, uh, it says it here at the end of verse number four. Now, those who were scattered went about, here it is, preaching the word. Now, those who were scattered, they were doing something. They weren't just scattered to fit into the rest of culture and society and to hide away as if uh, hopefully they won't see that I'm a Christian. No, they went out and they were scattered. They were scattered preaching the word. And remember, this is Philip. And Philip is a deacon. Okay, He's not a pastor. He's not an elder. He's not an apostle. He's one of the deacons. Let your eyes fall back in chapter 6. Look at, at 6 verse number 5. You have the story of, of, of the choosing of the deacons. Deacons, and in verse number five, it said, and they, uh, and what they said pleased the whole congregation, our whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip. Philip's just one of the guys who was selected to wait on widows' tables. He was an average, regular dude, but even he, even he went out preaching the word. It's all of our job. Say it. It's all of our job. One more time. It's all of our job to preach the word. And he was clearly preaching the word. And that's clearly a theme all throughout the book of Acts. One of the things that stood out to me as I've studied the book this, this second time or, or probably multiple times in my life, but as I studied the word as, we're, as we've been preaching it, is how often these guys just preach the word, man. Peter in uh, Acts 2 preaches the word, quotes scripture, preaches the word. We see it in Stephen, man. Stephen, when he was preaching, what did he do? Went back to the word, back to the word. These guys were preaching the word, and we see it all throughout the book of Acts. In Acts 4.29, it says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your service to continue to speak your word with boldness. Their prayer to God was that God would grant them strength to preach the word with boldness. And then God answered that prayer in Acts 4.31 where he says this, and when they heard it, they, when um, they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. 
It's not just in Acts, man. It's a, it's a principle all throughout his word. In, in Nehemiah, they had abandoned the word of God. They had abandoned Jerusalem. The thing was in ruins. Nehemiah shows up to help them. They find the book of the law. And then Ezra stands up and he preaches the book of the law. And look what happens in Nehemiah 8.8. 8. And they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. God's people need to be people of God's word. I'm going to say that again. God's people must be people of God's word. And here's uh, our clear commandment in 2 Timothy. This is what um, Paul, when he was teaching Timothy to be a pastor, this is what he said to do. He reminded him about scripture. First of all, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I can just camp out a whole sermon there, but I want you to see this charge he lays on Timothy next, where he says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming, listen church, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions who will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, one who proclaims the good news and fulfill your ministry. All right, on a scale of one to 10, how clear is it that God wants us to be about preaching his word? Yeah, at least a 10, if not beyond a 10. It is really, really clear that we should be preaching the word of God. And if our church does anything, uh, I, I, would, I would hope you see clearly enough from his word that if we do anything, we better be preaching the word. And yet the church in America has abandoned the preaching of the word of God. That's not said strong enough. As a trajectory across this country, churches are running from the belief that God's word is inspired, infallible, inerrant, and sufficient. They're running from that. So we're unhitching from the Old Testament. And we're taking out offensive language from our doctrinal statements. And we're bowing down to the pressures of relevancy and acceptance. And in fear of being offensive, the church in America is abandoning what's clearly told by the word of God. To preach the word. Here's why I'm so passionate about this. I, I was hanging out with a friend this past week, friend Josh. He's a pastor friend, and he's pastoring down in Bloomington. And so Courtney and Rachel, are, his wife, are really good friends, and Josh and I are really good friends. And, and here's what pastors do when they're relaxing and just kicking back. They had a, a house that they were uh, borrowing for the week that was on this beautiful lake. And so we're just sitting, and we're looking at the lake, and we're chilling out. And, and what pastors do when we do that is we talk theology. The girls went off and they were talking about what girls talk about, you know, knitting or whatever it is that they talk about down there. But um, the guys were, were talking about theology and, uh, and Josh reminded me of this. I think it was a really good way of just thinking about pastoral ministry. Pastors are the ones who stand in the breaches and fight off the enemy from getting in. 
you can imagine the church as a fortress surrounded by a wall and where the where the breaches where the enemy is getting in pastors need to stand at the breaches and fight and i so i believe very strongly that this is a big breach people are the enemy is getting in on the church in in desire to be more relevant and in a fear of being offensive we are downplaying the word of god in the church and i just want to say this should never ever 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 be true this church's strength is directly tied to the passion for god's word because because church this is how god works this is how he works he works through his word the church in america is in decline Big time, all across the country, in decline. It's not in decline because they're too offensive. It's not in decline because we're not relevant enough. It's decline because we are unattaching ourselves from the very power source for people to find transformation. It comes through the word of God. I just want to be a place where that is happening. Now, I... I don't want to stand up here and say we're better than or whatever, but I do need to stand here and say that there is a passion for what we do and a reason why we do it, and there is a difference. Because just because a guy stands and has a Bible in his hand doesn't mean it's biblical preaching. I'm reading a book right now. Um, It's um, uh, by John Piper. It's called The Supremacy of God in Preaching. And I, it's a good book, and I would recommend it to you. And you say, well, why would I read a book on preaching? I'm not a preacher. No, but you help keep preachers accountable. And if you know the foundation, what should be the foundation of our preaching is helpful. And it's, a, it's an excellent book. But he points out several things that was helpful to, for me to help you see, I believe. Because just because a guy is preaching the Bible doesn't mean he's preaching from the Bible. Does that make sense? There's several ways of doing it. One way is topical. And a lot of pastors will do this. They'll find something they want to say, some statement they want to make, and then they'll find verses to sprinkle into that in order to say the thing that they want to say. That's topical preaching. Now, that's different from how we do. Once in a while, we'll say, like, let's take the topic of marriage or let's take a topic of whatever. And we'll probably find a passage and unpack that passage on that topic. But this is the idea of I have this idea. I have this lofty thought. And I just want to make the Bible say and agree with my thought. That's one way of doing preaching. Another way is textual. So what Piper points out in his book, textual. Textual is like I'm going to grab a verse and then it's going to run. Okay. I'm going to grab a verse, I'm going to go, and then most of the sermon is going to be my own thoughts or my illustrations or my whatever, and that's, that's, that's how we're going to preach. And, and, I, and listen, I'm not presenting multiple right ways of doing it. I'm saying there's some wrong ways of doing it. That's a wrong way of doing it. Here's what biblical preaching should be. It should be expositional. And what I mean by expositional is that we, we, we what does it mean? What does the word say? And we're going to go to the word. I'm going to do my due diligence to understand what the author was saying to the people in the language in which he said it. What was the Holy Spirit trying to communicate to them? And then how does that apply to us? Historical, literal, grammatical interpretation of scripture with a redemptive view. And all of that's driving it. So say it this way. I'm going to throw some highfalutin terms up here to help you out. On the one hand, sermon should be expositional. Expositional means what I've been saying all along that the meaning of the text should be the meaning of my sermon. The point of the text should be the point of my sermon. I've done the study. This is what he's trying to say. That's what we're doing. That should be built on good exegesis. So uh, uh, preaching should be exegetical. In other words, when we talked about uh, the having hope, uh, did, did you see how that was tied to a verse? 
it was tied to verse number four, right? So they were scattered and God did the work. It was tied to that verse. When we talked about um, preaching the word, why are we talking about preaching the word? Because it's in verse four, preaching the word. Also in verse five, he proclaimed the Christ. More of that in a minute. In a moment, I'm going to talk about uh, miracles. Why? Because the text talks about miracles. So we're going to go to that verse, talk about miracles. Last thing, I'm going to talk about joy. Why? Because verse number eight ends with joy. Do you get the idea? It's, the points are based on the text. Uh, but, but listen, we can do both those things and still be ineffective. And I can make a bunch of people who have a lot of knowledge about the word of God, but not a lot of action in the word of God. And, and the churches I grew up in tended to be very much about Bible knowledge, Bible knowledge, Bible knowledge. But it's not just being hearers of the word. It's about being doers of the word. And that's why we land heavy on applicational, applicational. What does the word of God say and how we should live? And my job as a pastor is not to come up with a bunch of stories that will entertain you guys for a little bit of time based on a little verse of scripture. My job as a pastor is to lay in the text, study the text, tell you what the text means, and then help you and help us to live the text. In the book, John Piper says this. It was a really good quote, I, I felt. All Christian preaching should be the exposition and application of biblical texts. Our authorities as preachers sent by God rises and falls with our manifest allegiance to the text of scripture. I say manifest because there are so many preachers who say they are doing exposition when they are not, when they do not ground their assertions explicitly manifestly in the text. He goes on to say this, the effect of that kind of preaching is to leave people groping for the word. I hope I'm communicating clearly from the word. Okay, you guys with me on this? Kind of sounds like. You guys with me on the conviction of biblical preaching? If you're with me on that, say amen. amen. Awesome. But I need to say, there's a danger. And the danger is that we get to be pretty proud about the fact that we are expositional and exegetical in our preaching and pretty pretty stoked about how we do it and they don't do it, but we do. And we're really good and we fill ourselves with Bible knowledge and, and you need to do it, you need to do it, you need to do the word of God. Do, you, do we need to do the word of God? Yeah, we're doing the word of God. But here, here's, here's the thing you need to know. You can't do the word of God. Because you're not awesome. The danger is that we begin to think we're pretty awesome because of our stance on the Bible. But you know what? Can I break it to you? Love you. You're not awesome. Jesus was awesome in your place. And look at the text. This is really important to see. Verse number four. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and what proclaimed to them the Christ. So hold on a second. Verse number four says they were preaching the word. Verse number five says he was proclaiming the Christ. Well, which one was it? Did he preach the Bible or did he preach the gospel? <laughs> the answer to that question is yes. Because to preach the word is to preach the gospel. The Bible is the book of one story, and that story is our God is a God who saved, and he saved us through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, when you embrace the gospel, you embrace your need for a Christ. Do you know you need a Christ? 
You need a savior because you bring nothing to the table. But it doesn't sit so well today, does it? I mean, because you just are told to believe that you've got to believe in yourself. And it's all about you and you're worthy and all that. And I get that's the message of the day. But I want to tell you, it's not about you being awesome. It's about Jesus being awesome. Can I say it again? It's not about you being awesome. It's about Jesus being awesome and loving you regardless of your sin. But he has loved you. You are loved in Christ. And you are forgiven in Christ. And you have the Christ. So for us to be careful about, about wandering off into legalism and pharisaical arrogance, we have to ground ourselves in our desperate need for the Christ. And that will change our heart and change our mentality. And it will change the way you look at others. Please don't look at other churches and say, we're better than them. Because we're not. Because we're all wretched sinners. Look at all of us and say, what we need is some Jesus. All of us need Jesus. All right. I almost got excited for a minute. I just almost did. I was really close. I almost preached for a second. (laughs) The gospel. We need the gospel. Here's a couple of application questions to help you think through this a little bit. If you love the fact that our church preaches the word, does that same passion find its way into your daily habits? Preach it, pastor, preach it. Okay, live it, read it, soak it in, be about the word. Are you, listen, I got to ask this, especially young, younger people, teens, my youth group kids. We're doing what we're doing on purpose because there's tons of pressure on teens today and they're surrounded by a different message. Are you in danger of weakening your stance on the word due to outside influences. One of the breaches we have to stand in, I have to stand in, is the breach of sexuality because the enemy is getting into the church by a weakened view of sexuality. Men, it is okay to be men. God's kind of man. Women, it is okay to be God's kind of woman, and there are differences between the two by God's design. It is not okay for sexual relationships to happen outside of the boundary of a heterosexual marriage, period. Because that's what God's word says. There are two genders, male and female. Because that's what God's word says. And you kids, you teens, maybe you adults are being pressured to weaken that stance even though God's word is very, very clear about it because of the pressures on the outside and the church is collapsing. But listen, stand on the word of God. All right. How about this? Are you in danger of self-righteousness? Do you spend most of your time thinking about how other people are wrong? (laughs) And how right you are and how good that feels. Maybe we need a reminder that we have no righteousness but Jesus. And how does the gospel help you keep that balance? Now, I know I spent a lot of time on there. Maybe you're thinking, dude, that's like two and you got two more. We're going to be here forever. No, you won't. All right, we're going to move on. 
Hoping in him, preaching his word. Number three, write this down, sharing his miracles, sharing his miracles. We're asking the question, how do we join God in his work? From the text, what does the text say about joining God in his work? Well, uh, he is at work. We want to be a part of that by hoping in him, by proclaiming his word, and thirdly, by sharing his miracles. And that comes from verses 6 and 7. Let your eyeballs fall on 6 and 7. Verse number 6 says this, And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. Wouldn't that be nice? To preach and people pay attention? That'd be awesome. You guys do great. You guys do great. First service is terrible, but you guys are awesome <laughs> at listening to the word. Thank you for that. Um, no, but I mean, but in all seriousness, like as you go about like telling people about Jesus this week, if you did that, wouldn't it be cool? People were like, okay, what now? Say that again. I, I want to I understand. So they paid attention. Now watch, into verse 6, when they heard him, okay, so he spoke, that says something, right? And saw the miracle of the signs that he did. Four unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So here it is again, you have Philip doing flat out miracles, casting out demons, healing people who were sick. People who couldn't walk are now walking, and as the God is at work, he is proclaiming the word, and the miracles are attesting to the preaching of the gospel. And we had a whole sermon on this a few weeks ago where I said, it, it, it's, it's what God does. God attests to the preaching of his word through miracles. So let me just go back and summarize a few things that we need to do to get a good biblical balance on all of this, because there's a lot of question mark in Bible preaching churches about how miracles work and how all these things occur, and, and I believe this is the right kind of balance of all of that. First of all, we need to know that God can and still does work miracles. Do you believe it? I do. God can and he still does work miracles. He can do it. I think miracles can and do authenticate the preaching of the gospel. And I'm hearing this in, in the mission field, and we're all okay with that. We're here on the mission field of God doing miracles and attesting to the preaching of the gospel. I think it does happen here as well, and I think God can do that. And I think it is right and good for the church to pray and ask for God to do that. Again, in the book of Acts, the end of uh, chapter 4, they say, God, give us boldness to preach your word while you stretch out your hand and, and work signs and wonders. They pray for that. And I think it's a good thing for us to pray. But I think it's also good to balance all of that with the understanding that there was a greater concentration of those miracles in the early church. These kind of things happened more frequently and to greater degree in the early church, it seems, than they do even now today. So what does that mean for us today? Should we expect God to cast out demons? Should we expect lame people to be healed? Well, maybe. But here's the deal. I can't command God to do anything. You track with me on this? I can't command God to heal that person or to do this. God has to move and God has to do the work. God has to be the one. Our job, listen now carefully, this is the point. Our job is that when he does the miracle, we need to proclaim and share that miracle because the working of God can raise up within people the wonder of God, which God will use to draw people to the gospel. I'll say it again. The the wonders, the working of God can rise up in people the wonder of God and God can use that to draw people into the gospel. Has God shown up in your life? Please say he has. Yes. 
Has God done the miraculous for you? Proclaim that. You'll be shocked at how much God uses it. Uh, Mikhail's here with us this morning. Mikhail got baptized a few months ago, if you remember his story. Uh, he was um, addicted to heroin. Heroin. And um, caught up in that sin. And his parents were praying. It was a struggle. God miraculously healed him from that addiction. And he's walking in freedom today, and his story is just miraculous. And, and, and God is still using that story, that testimony, the lives of other people. In fact, he has a roommate named Adrian, and he's been praying for a long time that Adrian would get saved, like crying out to God, God, save my friend Adrian, save my friend Adrian. And, and there's just some discouraging times along that way. As you probably experienced this, like I feel like I'm preaching the gospel and no one's believing. I feel like I'm doing the work and no one's hearing me. What good is this anymore? Again, the discouragement that comes when you're laboring and seeing little results. So we began to pray and, and, and together, and he met with Dan DeBolt to kind of guide him to some prayer. And anyway, we began praying a little differently for all of that. And well, a couple of weeks ago, they have a dog and their dog, German Shepherd, got out and they went to work and the dog got out. And when the neighbors saw that the dog was out and apparently there was another dog in the neighborhood and they, um, the dogs uh, fell in love and um, <laughs> beautiful romance story uh, that happened there. And uh, the neighbor saw that and also saw the owner of the other dog come and get the dog and take the dog away. And so, so the, the neighbor was telling Adrian and, and uh, Mikhail about this and said, hey, you know, this dog, you know, the love. And then uh, she took him and I don't know who she is, but she had a Jesus loves you sticker on her truck. So anyway, they ended up finding her and she came and she was apologizing about the whole thing. And But, but uh, Mikhail and, and Sarah's her name, they began talking about Jesus and talking about how much Jesus loves them and talking about how awesome the gospel is and Adrian's there hearing it all and light bulbs finally begin to kind of go off in his head. It's kind of like, really? I mean, this gal, it's not just Mikhail is passionate about Jesus. She's just as passionate saying a lot of the same things that he's saying. Like, maybe this is true. Maybe this is true. Make a long story short, Adrian accepted Christ as a savior. And the dogs are married now. They're together. It's a beautiful story. Proclaim it. Proclaim it. Tell the world. I mean, I got stories of miracles that God has done for me. Maybe, maybe it's a healing for your life, or maybe it's a relationship you put together. And, and I don't know. I don't know how God chooses to work, but He does work. And we're to proclaim that, man, in my devotions today, I love when God does this. I just happen to be, happen to be in Psalm 105. And Psalm 105 starts out, sing, sing to the Lord, sing praises to his name. Tell of his deeds. Proclaim his mighty works. And I'm like, God, thank you. That goes right along my message, but an affirmation. And so the application is really simple. In what ways can you share about what God has done in your life? In what ways can you share about what God has done in your life? And I would encourage you, share it. Because when people see the works of God, their wonder of God rises in their hearts, and God will use that to draw him to himself and draw them to the gospel. Number four, four ways we can join God, hoping in him, proclaiming his word, sharing his miracles. I know it's warm in here. You guys are doing great. Keeping along, but lastly, spreading his joy. Spreading his joy. Easy to see where this comes from, right from the text, verse number eight. So there was much joy 
in that city. And of course there was. Because that's what Jesus brings when he shows up. It's promised. John 15, 11 says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. John 15, 11. I'll go as far as to say this. Nothing else in all of life brings the joy that Jesus brings. Church, nothing else. You can ask my wife, man, I'm a dude who loves life. I love life. I love living life. Uh, forever, she's called me Pollyanna. If you've never seen the Disney, the Disney movie, go see it. It's an older one, but you'll get it. I just I'm kind of tend to be positive, tend to see the, the cup half full kind of a guy. And uh, it's been harder the older I've gotten, I'll tell you. But, but for the most part, been, I love life. And, you know, like I told you this past week, man, just sitting at this lake home with my friend Josh talking about theology. It just was such a, I just love that day. It was a great day. And then very often, man, several times a week, my family and I go to our screened-in porch, and we'll put the music on, we'll pull the games out, and we'll just be together playing games, enjoying each other's company. And I just, I'm like, oh, just the simple stuff, man. I love life. But you know, all those things can be tempted by negativity when I pull Jesus out of the equation. And we do that sometimes. I can walk away from my conversation with Josh and I begin to think, did I say something stupid? Did I say something maybe that offended him? Maybe he won't like me as much. Because I said something. I don't, I don't think I did. Maybe I did. And you're playing. You ever do this? Play your head, that conversation back again, thinking, what did I say? What did I say? Is he, you know, and, and, and it's just tempted. And the joy is not as much as it should be. Or I can be sitting around the table with my kids and be thinking about, man, are they going to be okay? Maybe they're not going to be okay. Maybe God's going to take them or maybe something's going to happen and I can sit there and be so nervous about all of that. Very often, we're just kind of all walking around with some guilt and shame about the sin we know we commit because you know you're a sinner, don't you? And you're very aware, and the enemy makes you very aware of the specific sins that you commit. And I think we all walk around with this kind of overview that um, God really doesn't love me all that much. He tolerates me, but he doesn't really love me all that much. And if you're walking around in that, or if you're under the yoke of legalism, There's no joy in that. It might be biblical, but there's no joy in that. Because you're never going to attain the law. But you put Jesus back into all those things. My friend Josh can reject me. He can reject me because Jesus will never reject me. I may not have my friend Josh's approval. I'll always have God's approval because Jesus Christ earned that approval for me. You tracking? Are my kids going to be okay? Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put them in the hands of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to trust my kids to Jesus. And I'm going to trust that whatever God does is good and right. He's proven he loves me. He gave, he gave his life for me. I'm going to put my kids in his hands and enjoy them right now. And my sin, my sin's going to bog me down? No. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise God, praise God, oh, my soul. I am forgiven in Christ. 
And I'm going to mourn. I'm going to weep when I sin. I'm going to run to Jesus, and Jesus is going to forgive me. And I'm going to walk away from that forgiven and rejoicing in him. That's what we're going to do. That's joy. That's unhindered joy because I have Jesus. But I've talked to many Christians, especially those coming out of legalistic circles, who are under that yoke of legalism and they're hearing about it and hearing all the ways they fall short and all the ways they can't attain it. And I've heard people say this to me, why would I ever invite anyone else to this life? I don't know what I have in the room this morning. Maybe that's you. I just want to encourage you to come back to Jesus. The yoke that he has is not a heavy yoke. His burden is light because he's carried it for you. You just got to love him and run to him. We want it all to be about Jesus. Our definition of disciple that Drew shared is all centered around Jesus Christ. We want your life to be. Okay. It's warm in here, right? Amen. You're all hot. It's made some of you a little sleepy. And I noticed, just so you know. (laughs) So did Jesus, just so you know. Uh, But how do you apply a message like this? And I was thinking about, like, what is the conclusion I'm trying to draw to? What do I want you to do? Walking out of this church this morning, what do I want you to do? Well, we could do something like sing a song. We could do something like everybody get up and come up here if you want to make a stand for Jesus. No, that's good. But the reality is that can be very emotional and it also be like peer pressure. Everyone else is doing it, so I better do it. So instead, what I'm going to do, I'm just going to pray over you. And I'm going to ask God to take what he, what he does. He just takes his word, he applies it to the heart, and he changes lives. So I'm going to ask God to do that with our word today and uh, challenge you, get about being a part of God's work. Do that and watch what God will do. If you've got nothing else, get this. God is still at work. God is still at work, and we can join him. So, Father, we just ask that you would um, do that. I love the fact that the power of this church, the success, quote-unquote, of this church is uh, way more on your shoulders than it is mine. I will water, I will plant. But, Father, you and only you can bring the increase. And so right now, I put this message, this church, into your hands. And I say, Father, I've done what you've called me to do. I've preached your word. Now you take it. Ignite the hearts of your people to be about your work. Do miracles for your glory. And Father, may many come to know Christ as a result. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You are loved.